Thin Air is an independently produced podcast created by Daniel Calderon and Jordan Sims. For more information about us, check out our website at thinairpodcast.com. There you'll find detailed blogs on the cases we cover, our contact information, social media, donation pages, and much, much more. Again, that is thinairpodcast.com. We are so excited to announce that today's episode of Thin Air Podcast is sponsored by Audible. Because Audible values the work we do here at Thin Air Podcast, they are offering our listeners a 30-day free trial with your first audiobook free over at audible.com thinair. After browsing through Audible's amazing titles, I was so excited to get my first audiobook completely free and ready to be enjoyed right away while sitting at home on my computer, on the go on my smartphone, anytime, anywhere I want to listen. I was really excited. So a huge thanks to Audible for supporting Thin Air Podcast. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com slash thinair. When her daughter went missing on September 21st, 2015, Jeannie Kramer was nearly a world away, driving through the Australian outback. A nurse who works in remote Aboriginal communities, Jeannie got the call about her daughter Asha a day into her three-day journey to her home, a small town to the south of Brisbane. Well, I was driving. It takes me three days to drive back here to my house. I live at the coast, and so I was driving, and on my second day of driving, phone rang, and the phone rang, and it was um, my older daughter, Jansky, and she said, Asha's in the hospital. And I went, oh, my God. And, you know, I said, it's going to take me another day or so to get home, and then I'll get on a plane. And then within within a couple minutes, she called me back and said, oh, no, she's missing. And then I was just like, oh, my God, what is going on? 26-year-old Asha had been living in Albion, a small coastal town in Northern California, with her boyfriend, Jemai, for three and a half years. Asha, though born in the U.S., grew up largely in Australia with her sister and mother, Jeannie. Um, I lived in Hawaii for seven years, and so she was born in Hilo. She was probably about two when um, we moved to Australia. I moved around a lot. I'm a nurse. I moved around to positions, more or less. I, I didn't move because I liked places. I'd get a certain position, and then I'd go to that place. We lived in probably uh, two different areas and when I um, went out to Central Australia to work with Aboriginal people, I lived out on communities. Sometimes the girls would come with me, sometimes they would be at boarding school and they pretty much grew up in Alice Springs. When Asha was about 14, she asked to go to boarding school in Brisbane. So I arranged that and then I missed her so much I moved to Brisbane and I lived right near the boarding school. Asha seems like someone you would want to know. The photos of her found online show she's beautiful, with thick curly black hair, round face, and sleepy brown eyes. She loves animals and is often pictured with her chickens and beloved dogs that she owned with boyfriend, Jemai. The day she went missing is a hard day for Jeannie to recount for many reasons. It is, of course, an emotional story, but there is much confusion about what was happening the days before Asha's disappearance, how she went missing exactly, and the days immediately afterward. In other words, every element of Asha's disappearance lacks clarity for a variety of reasons we'll discuss. 
The first thing that Jeannie does after her long travel is to get on a plane to California. Well, it took me another day to get home, and then I got a plane the next day. It probably took me two days. Because of the time difference, I actually got there on a Wednesday, but for me it was probably Thursday. You fly in. Where do you go from there? Well, I was picked up at the airport by Jemai's mother. She drove me to the property at Albion, where Asha and Jemai live. And um, so I got there, and there was, um, he had a lot of his friends there. He has quite a large group of friends from San Francisco that he's known a long time. So they were all at the house. And I just watched everyone to the best of my ability. Also at the house was a woman named Sally, who was Asha's friend from Australia and was staying with them for a visit. This friend and Jemai were the two who were there when Asha disappeared. I hadn't spoken to Asha for a week before she went missing, and I was out working. I work in remote communities, and it was very challenging. And I knew Asha had Sally coming, and I thought, I'm, I felt like a, I've always been this single-parent helicopter mom, so I thought, no, I'm not going to call and you know interrupt their adult time. I, I thought these are two women who are approaching 30 and they don't need me calling them all the time. So I didn't bring her and I really regret that because I could have possibly settled some of this down. Sally had just come from Washington, D.C. She'd been over there doing something about Aboriginal artifacts. So she was spending time with Asha, and it was Sally's birthday. Sally and Asha, did they grow up together? Yes, Sally spent a lot of time at my home when I moved into Alice Springs. She spent a lot of time with my family. I first went out into Central Australia to work with Aboriginal people. My first community was where Sally's actually from. So we met Sally in 1996. Did she specifically go to California to visit Asha? Yes. Absolutely, just to see Asha, yeah. By all accounts I could find, Sally arrives probably around September 15th or 16th, five days or so before Asha disappears. So Sally and Asha hang out, as old friends would, and one night, shortly after Sally gets there, the two get into some heavy conversation, and something happens to Asha that triggers a major change in her, and nothing is ever the same. They had been talking about the death of their fathers. Both girls' fathers had passed away, and they were talking about those types of things. And then they talked about another friend that had just passed away that year. And um, Ms. Sally said that at one point, Asha just sort of sat up really stiff and, and looked what I would describe as quite catatonic, like she just got, sat up really rigid and just stared straight ahead. This conversation and what was discussed exactly is somewhat vague, but definitely involved the death of her father, who passed away when she was little. Whatever the conversation was about specifically, Asha goes into a state that's hard to understand, but is frequently mentioned on our podcast, the mental break or psychosis. Almost immediately, Asha stops sleeping and her behavior becomes more and more erratic. I didn't know of any mental health issues before this. 
you know, I'm a single parent with two daughters, and I think it's been very hard for them growing up. So they, I thought that maybe they had some symptoms of anxiety, which I thought, well, maybe that's from being single parent with two kids, and they spend a lot of time on their own. And my feeling about Asha is she always had very mature you know, observations about life. She was very sensible. Whatever Asha was feeling, it affected her immensely. Though she had no prior episodes of mental illness, it does run in her family, and her father was said to have had a similar issue when he was younger. Whatever happens, Asha stops eating, she stops sleeping, and her behavior becomes more and more dangerous. Four days into this episode, Jemai and Sally realize that Asha needs medical attention, and they take her to the Mendocino Coast District Hospital in Fort Bragg, a short distance from their home in Albion. Um, with never being a clear story, it's um, different people giving different accounts of the day. However, from what I understand, Asha had been admitted to Fort Bragg Hospital and she'd also not been sleeping well for the past three or four nights. And um, they were kind of exhausted by all that, so they thought they'd take her to the hospital. And um, she had a mental health assessment. Jemai and Sally take Asha to the hospital, where, and Jeannie is not sure when this happens exactly, but Asha becomes hostile towards hospital staff and refuses to have her vitals taken, which is when... The hospital called the police to come. I spoke to the police, um, Sergeant Lee. From what I understand, he had two officers there. He himself even went down to the hospital because it was taking so long, which to me means something wasn't quite right with that. They um, held Asha down because she was trying to get away. You know, I think they tried to put manacles on her. I I think they were quite rough with her. Um, that's the feeling I get. Um, which, I mean, Asha would have been so shocked. She's never had contact with that kind of thing before. I don't know if they put her in a 5150 or not. I, that's never been clear because of the HIPAA law. The hospital wouldn't give me any information. They did release her from the hospital after the mental health assessment, and she was released into the care of her boyfriend. For whatever reason, Asha is released into the care of Jemai and Sally and is taken back home, the specific circumstances of which are unclear because, as Jeannie said, HIPAA. But this is where the story becomes complicated due to the relationship between Jeannie, Jemai, and Sally. Though Jeannie would not want to say a bad word about anyone, she does feel that there are some inconsistencies in what stories were told after Asha's disappearance. Nobody has been above board and totally honest with me about what was going on on that property. I really feel that I haven't had direct information. One thing that still isn't clear to Jeannie is how Asha was even released if she was placed on a 5150, a California welfare code for an involuntary 72-hour psychiatric hold that's put on a person who is considered to be in danger to themselves or others. I don't understand how if you're put in a 72-hour hold, you can be released to the boyfriend within hours. 
After some research, it appears that while a 5150 is involuntary for the patient, authorities can release them at any time, which is what seems to have happened in Asha's case. This would, of course, prove to be a major mistake. The, the young man, I spoke to the man who did the mental health assessment and he started crying. I think he felt responsible for a bad decision. You know, I've been nursing 47 years and as soon as I started hearing about so many people being incompetent, everybody did the wrong thing, I thought this is a mess. That night, the three come home from the hospital and Asha has not improved. Her behavior remains unpredictable. She was up again all night and, you know, running into the woods and trying to get up to the road to jump in the cars. And um, so the morning, when morning came, the boyfriend and the visitor from Australia thought that they would go take her for a drive. They thought that might calm her down. Asha, Sally, and Jemai go for a ride along the coast, going south, and end up at the Rollerville Cafe in Flumeville, a small area near Point Arena, California, which was about 45 minutes away from Jemai and Asha's home in Albion. The area is very close to the ocean, and its major attraction is a beautiful lighthouse, the fittingly named Point Arena Light. They stop for breakfast and coffee, and then... Again, the details of what happened next are somewhat unclear. They were sitting in the booth, and Sally got up and said, I'm going to the restroom. And Asha got up and said, I'm going to the restroom too, and followed Sally. And so I questioned Sally and said, why, if she's not mentally well, would you not be watching her closely? And Sally said, oh, well, I just went into the restroom and I thought she was behind me. And she wasn't. I really fixated on this particular moment because it's the last time she's seen and, of course, it's somewhat unclear. I read articles online that stated that Asha was the one who went to the bathroom first and then Sally went and Asha wasn't there. This restaurant, the Rollerville Cafe, is a small cafe located in a collection of buildings called the Lighthouse Point Resort, which includes a gift shop and cottages to rent while sightseeing at the nearby lighthouse. The bathroom was located just outside the cafe. It wasn't actually indoors. You go out one door and then you turn to the right and go into the restroom. And that's what Sally did. And she said she thought Asha was behind her. So so Sally comes back to the table and... They're both like, where is she? Yes, yes. I find it heartbreaking that people take a girl for a mental assessment and then they don't take care of her properly. Asha goes missing on a Tuesday. Jeannie is there by Thursday, arriving to help with the search and to find out anything that she can. When she gets there, as she said, she tries to observe everyone in Asha and Jemaya's house and she found the attitude of those there less than supportive. You know, as I arrived as a totally traumatized mother, I, I just really thought all I could do was observe because I didn't have any control over my feelings or emotions at that point. I was just so devastated and, and confused and heartbroken and all those things. And so when I arrived there... Um, what struck me as odd was that Sally and Jemai both said, oh, it's Asha, she's just acting out. 
And I thought, what? I, I didn't, I thought they were minimizing her um, mental health. The relationship between Jemai and Jeannie was never great and began when Asha and her sister moved to San Francisco years prior. Maybe four years, three and a half years. Asha went to San Francisco. Asha got a job quite quickly. Asha met Jemai about two weeks after they had arrived there. These two um, skateboarding guys talked to them as they were going home one evening and... Um, he invited them to a birthday party. So they went to the birthday party, and it was Jemai's birthday, and, yeah, that's how they met. I know Asha worked very hard to have a relationship. She, she was really, really trying to make a go of um, the relationship, I suppose. She, she wouldn't tell me anything negative. However, I did hear... About six months after she went missing, I heard some negative things about it. Jeannie did not want to say negative things about Jemai, but it's clear that Jeannie feels anger about how this could have happened to Asha in both Jemai and Sally's care. He he kept telling me stories about Asha, like saying negative things about why she was missing. And I just listen and I say, okay, but where is she? Every time he say something, I go, yes, but where is she? Like, he, he was trying to upset me. That's what I actually felt. He was really trying to upset me. So how did Asha get lost? Where could she have gone from the somewhat remote, nearly seaside cafe? The first stop for Jeannie was to meet with local police, which she admits did not go well. Details on the police investigation and aftermath into the disappearance of Asha Kramer right after this short break brought to you by Audible. I was so excited to get started over at Audible and try out my first free audiobook. Audiobooks are great to listen to anytime. With Audible, you can bring your entire book collection with you, making a long commute not only bearable, but enjoyable. And for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. Just go to audible.com thinair and browse their unmatched selection of audio content. You just download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. My free audiobook was Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders, which I'll admit I was giddy to download. Not only is this the first novel from one of my favorite authors, but the audiobook boasts a great cast, including Nick Offerman, Carrie Brownstein, David Sedaris, Miranda July, Lena Dunham, and George Saunders himself. This made the audiobook such a unique and enjoyable experience. The book is a work of historical fiction and is about death, about ghosts, and about being caught between the land of the living and the dead, all told in a series of personal and emotional stories. If you like our podcast, I think you will love Lincoln and the Bardo audiobook. But if you don't like that, it's cool. They have so many different titles and genres that I know you will find the perfect audiobook just for you and totally free. To get started, head on over to audible.com thinair to get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. Again, that's audible.com thinair.
It's an all too familiar story. The initial response to a missing adult is lackluster, especially since she could have walked away voluntarily. I was probably pretty jet lagged. Sally and I went down to the police station and they talked to Sally. They didn't talk to me. Um, they didn't see any reason to talk to me. I was just so overwhelmed and I, I could just, I was having trouble sitting probably. I did finally establish a relationship more with the sheriff. Uh, some people say I actually got a lot more help than most people get. That might be because I know I work with police and I know the one thing you don't do is lose your temper <laughs> and you just go, oh great, oh you're working so hard. Asha's case has been specifically stymied by the issue of jurisdiction, who the investigative agency should be based on where she went missing. Asha lived in Albion, California, but went missing near Point Arena, California, which makes the local police there, the Mendocino County Sheriff's Department, the agency in charge. The issue is further compounded by Asha's dual citizenship between Australia and the U.S., which almost makes for so many potential investigating agencies that practically there are none. Um, it kind of makes it a different situation because she's on U.S. soil when she went missing. And so what I needed to do was call Canberra and um, report her to the constable down there, which I, I've done everything they've asked me to do, so I did that. Um, they also suggested I contact Interpol, which I did. And then um, after it kept going on, I also reported her missing here in Australia at our local police station. The Australian consul also said that I had to deal with the local authorities, of course, which where Asha went missing, that area is covered by the sheriff's department. So that's who I had to deal with. And the police, even though they had involvement with her, they wouldn't give me, I mean, Sergeant Lee gave me information just chatting with me, but they weren't really meant to give me information either because of the HIPAA law. It blocks you every time you turn around. It must be such a mess for you, especially being, like, so far away and getting everyone's story secondhand. Oh, absolutely. And the sheriff, I mean, I don't want to say bad things on the air about them, but they they, they put me in a room and said, well, you know, she probably died. Why do they say these things? That's all I thought. I thought, this is not helpful. Why are they saying this? I think they wanted me to go away. They wanted me to break down and go away. That's what their aim was. In that area, in the area of Northern California, there's a lot of, especially females, go missing up there. And they don't have even a missing persons unit. I mean, I'm in a little town here in Australia with maybe 3,000 people. We've got a missing persons unit. Something amazing about Jeannie is how she uses her skills as a nurse to network, to find people and make the best of a bad situation. Jeannie quickly mobilized to get answers and discovered some initial hints that Asha traveled further down the coast. There are some reported sightings of her later that day. Maybe it was 10 days afterwards, I got involved with the Point Arena Care Center. That's kind of the hub of activity in that area. And they helped me a lot. We organized a land search. And while I was there, a woman that ran the gift shop at the lighthouse said, when she opened, not long after she'd opened, oh, she came in. I'm pretty sure she came in that day. 
which is quite logistically possible. And then um, a young woman contacted me who said that she saw her in a supermarket at a nearby town at 3.30 in the afternoon. And she, she said, you know, your daughter's so attractive that I needed to stand near her and look at her closely because I thought, oh, I wonder where she's from. And um, she said that she, she described Dasha quite well. And she um, said that, I said, what was the energy like that she was giving off? And she said, she said that it felt really like, don't get near me, just stay away. And I thought, oh, that's probably her. You know, she, she can give you that energy when she wants to. Did the person at the lighthouse talk about her behavior? Yes. They said that she was acting a bit nervously. There were two sightings, the first at the lighthouse at 10.30 a.m. and the next, the 3.30 sighting, is in Gulala, a town 30 minutes south of the cafe. If this sighting is correct, there are limited possibilities of what Asha is doing once leaving the cafe. The first possibility is that she hitchhiked, as Asha didn't drive and didn't take the car. In the days prior to her disappearance, she had been seen trying to get into cars. Maybe someone picked her up, taking her to Gualala. No person has come forward to say that this happened. Asha could have walked to Gualala, though Google Maps estimates a walk would take around six and a half hours. She leaves the cafe around 10 or 10.30, which would make a 3.30 p.m. sighting hard to believe. But the team helping Jeannie search also found a jacket belonging to Asha, indicating that she could have been walking near the ocean. Up near, up near the cliff. Now, I don't, I don't know how that jacket got there. Sally said she didn't have a jacket. Um, that was always a bit of a mystery, where the, how the jacket got there. And we found that jacket on the day that we all did the search. And it was her jacket, for sure? Yes, yes. When she went missing, do you know what she was wearing otherwise? Well, she had on black skinny jeans and a gray sweatshirt type top, like a t-shirt top. At, um, Sally and Demai said she had no shoes on, but the woman who runs the cafe said, look, if she had no shoes on, we probably wouldn't have let her in because they have a policy if you don't have shoes, you're not allowed in. And when the woman saw her at Walala's store in the afternoon, she said she had on um, black flip-flops. And I, I thought, oh, well, that's Asha's shoe of choice usually. So I, I think she might have had her shoes on, or her flip-flops anyway. Yeah, I read that she wasn't wearing shoes, but it would be very hard to get around if she wasn't. I felt that same way up in that terrain. It's really hard on your feet. I thought, oh, I don't think she could have come out to these places. There's lots of prickles and thorns and things like that. Did she have anything with her when she was missing, like credit cards? No, she left everything. So she had a cell phone, and I've read that there was some confusion about who had it or when she had it. Do you know? We're still a bit confused about that. I really don't know how it got to her house at Albion, but when I arrived there, um, Jemai very quickly for some reason said, oh, here, you use Asha's phone. And I said, oh, do you have her phone? And he said, yeah, she, I found it out here in the bushes. 
So he would say that she never took it with her to the restaurant. Nobody is clear about that. I really don't know. One of the stories, and I can tell this one quite, you know, truthfully because I was the person there. I spoke to the boy who, the young man who does dishwashing at the cafe, and he told me he was looking out the window and he saw Asha on a phone and she was pacing in the parking lot. And she only had one cell phone? Well, now that's a question that has just come up recently. There have been no reported sightings of her released to the public since the 3.30 sighting in Gualala. But there was one detail of this day that stuck out to me, which I read in several reports, that Asha went back to the Albion property for her dog that day. There were two dogs involved. The she had a, Hers was a German Shepherd, and then Jemai had the other dog, um, the bigger dog, the Mastiff-type dog. She was at the house when I got there. However, the German Shepherd wasn't, and I've, I, it got to the point where I heard, I would say, at least six stories from Jemai of what happened to that dog. So I don't know what happened to that dog. I, I don't know if Asha went back. I, I find it hard to believe. However, maybe. I mean, anything's possible. What were some of the other explanations he gave about her dog? He said, oh, the dog, somebody said the dog was in the car at the cafe. Then the dog was, ran away. Then the dog, um, oh, I did have somebody at 4.30 in the afternoon. Like, she was seen at 3.30 in the cafe at Walala, which is quite nearby. And then at Walala at 4.30, Jemai turned up. And they, the girl at the, this hotel said that he came into the hotel and he asked if his friend was staying there. And she said that the German Shepherd was in the car at that time. The story of the dog, it nags at me. Asha goes missing, and the same day, her dog goes missing too. All articles I read stated in some form this story, that Asha goes back to the house for her dog. Logistically, if she doesn't drive, and she isn't in a mentally well state, how would she have gotten back to her house at Albion, 45 minutes from the cafe, grabbed her dog, and then is seen later that day? It seems incredibly unlikely. And perhaps most importantly, what does this detail imply? It implies, in some way, that Asha thought about leaving more permanently, and had the presence of mind to do so, which, from every description of her behavior and mental state, seems unlikely. And the sighting of Jemai in Gualala at 4.30 p.m. with the dog. This is especially confusing to me, and it is, again, unclear if it happened or not. If this did happen, if he shows up with the dog and someone sees him, it's especially suspicious and could mean that he knows more than what he's saying. So how and why the dog came to be missing is one of the biggest mysteries in this story. With so little information in this case outside of initial possible sightings and questions lingering about many of the major details, Jeannie has some theories about what happened that day and where Asha could be now. She does think that Asha is alive, possibly doesn't know who she is, and is in hiding. More than anything, I believe Asha was trying to be safe. Trying to get out of a dangerous situation. Correct. One of the theories was that you had said that she might be um, somewhere with a, a growing operation, a marijuana growing operation, maybe hiding out. 
Do you still think that? No, I don't think that now. <laughs> I, but but it's a possibility in that she's been missing 18 months without any ID, without passport, without anything. You know, I know those operations do harbor people and that she would certainly be hidden away somewhere, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know if she's being held by, you know, I don't. I don't know. I just really don't know. Such a, is she being held against her will? Is she voluntary? Um, you know, is she just keeping herself safe? She might not be well mentally either, but maybe she is. I don't know. I think anything at this point is possible. Asha was probably one of the least adventurous people I've ever met. She's a really stay-at-home girl. And to be doing what she's doing or wherever she is or whatever her state of mind is, it's just highly unusual. Since Asha walked out of the cafe that day, Jeannie has, in order to continue the search for Asha, traveled back and forth between Australia and the U.S., She works tirelessly to find any information about her daughter's whereabouts. She goes into homeless communities, shares information, and meets lots of people. I keep it really simple, and I go on my own everywhere. I'm used to working hard, so I I drive all over. I look everywhere. I go to police stations. I go to homeless shelters. I know where the homeless people go. I know where, you know, you have to get food stamps, all that kind of stuff. So I go to all those places. I hang out with homeless people, I hang out with people in the street, Um, I hand out cards that I have made up with all her information on it, and I just encourage people if they see somebody that looks like her to hand her the card. As I say, I've been everywhere, Grass Valley, Fortuna, Bernie, California, all these places. I, I can't imagine going to a country I don't live in and trying to find someone that I love alone. Like, that's very brave very brave well i'm not i'm not going to give up and i'm i'm i don't know if i'm brave but i'm driven i would definitely say i'm driven the the detectives that i've spoken to though they they think i'm just a neurotic mother things have been hard for Jeannie, but she never stresses this fact she's determined to keep looking for her daughter and to not give up hope that she could be found. It, well, it is hard, but I, I just feel like uh, her name, Asha, actually means hope. Um, you know, I just, I hope she's okay. I hope she's safe somewhere. That's my, I hope she's alive. I hope she's safe. And I hope she contacts me one day. I knew, going into my interview with Jeannie, that a lot of the details would be secondhand, but I didn't realize just how much confusion surrounds Asha's story. This is for a lot of reasons. Because of the tense, non-existent relationship between Jeannie and Jemai, the lack of investigation and clear police oversight, and media speculation about what could have happened to Asha, this case has had much information and conflicting reports, which has been hard for Jeannie and was hard for me to piece together. 
What I needed was the one person who could help put these pieces together, who could explain what happened to Asha's dog, about her cell phone, about her psychosis, and about what really happened that day at the cafe. And I didn't know if he would talk to me. I'm talking, of course, about Jemai. So I sent a hopeful message over Facebook, didn't hear anything. And then a week before this episode was set to be released. Good afternoon. This is Jemai. Two weeks from now on Thin Air Podcast, part two of the Asha Kramer story. Jemai Gale speaks with us and tells us his story as he knows it of the days leading up to Asha's disappearance, what her mental health crisis was like, and what has happened in his life since. Join us in two weeks for another side of the story. The music you heard in today's episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue. Additional music was from Chris Zabriskie. Check out his website at chriszabriskie.com.